Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm your host and coach, Tyler Johnson. Thank you for tuning in. If you are a return listener, I'd be grateful for your rating or review. And if you dig this episode, give us a like or share. And now, whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you are in the right place. My guest this episode is the author of Someday Is Today, which we discuss in this episode, as well as nine other books. He is a best-selling novelist, a nationally recognized storyteller, and award-winning teacher. He's also a productivity guru. He teaches storytelling, communications to universities, corporate workplaces, and community organizations. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Matthew Dix. How are you doing today? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you. I've enjoyed your book because I was just kind of telling you offline here. But one of the things I had that was kind of bugging me, um, you've seen two perfect games. I, I have. I, I, had to, I had to ask what the two were. <laughs> uh, so it was David Wells and David Cohn's perfect games where we're, they were both within a year of each other back when I was seeing a lot of Yankee games before I bought Patriot season tickets and sort of stopped going to as many of those games. The Wells game was actually the Beanie Baby Day. And so when I went to that game, I had a kid with me and everyone was giving the kid these Beanie Babies, you know, because nobody wanted them. But by the time we get to like the seventh inning and he was still pitching in, you know, a perfect game, suddenly everyone wanted their Beanie Babies back because they thought they were going to be worth something. So I, I was fortunate enough to see both of those games. Very cool. Very cool. Um, well, one of the things that I think uh, personally that caught me as a coach and people that work with coaches and student athletes that are busy, um, there's a, the quote that you kind of adapted from somewhere else, but I liked your version better as well. Um, you can get a lot done in 10 minutes. Yes. Uh, talk about that and how sometimes we, we mistake that. You know, my production manager, when she was reading the first draft of the book, the thing that she took away from it, she said, the thing that really has changed her life is that she used to view all things in 30 minute or one hour increments. So like, if you're going to do something of any meaning, you need at least half an hour or an hour or more. And I just think that's a foolish way to live. I think you sort of throw away precious minutes throughout the day. If you have that perception that you can't use 10 minutes or five minutes or even one minute really productively and, you know, in a way that will move you forward or accomplish some meaningless task that will allow you to be productive later on in the day. So, you know, in the book, one of the things I encourage people to do is to make a list of all the things you can do in 10 minutes and just have that list sort of in your mind at all times. You know, I used to, I used to do competitive underground illegal arm wrestling in, a, in Brockton, Massachusetts. And so push-ups were something I used to do hundreds of push-ups a day. And one of the ways that I would make sure I was doing push-ups is sort of every time I would like go to the restroom during work, when I left the restroom, I would stop and I would do 30 push-ups. Or every moment that I had where, you know, there was nothing to do for the next minute or the next two minutes, I just drop and do push-ups. So you know, I'm not doing push-ups the way I used to religiously do them before, but it's the same principle. Whatever you're doing, fill those little minutes and you'll be better off than everybody else who's dithering them away, staring at a phone or, or, or basically doing nothing rather than getting ahead in some way that you want to get ahead. 
I like it. I've, I've used it in my own mind, reminding myself when I find myself with a moment, what, what can I do in 10 minutes? Um, yeah. And I yeah. think with athletes, you often say, you know, do a little, a lot, not a lot, a little. So, right. Yeah. I'm a big fan of incrementalism, sort of the, the accumulation of small decisions and small actions over the course of time will yield extraordinary results. Unfortunately, the world seems to be filled today with people who want success through big gulps, you know, and through mm -hmm. magic pills, as opposed to every single day, I need to take small steps forward and eventually I'm going to reach my goal. Yeah. I, uh, another thing that kind of caught me and it's one of those things I was telling you that I don't even know why they exist. Um, but, but the snooze alarm, student yeah. athletes, coaches, I know so many of us, my college roommate, we had morning workouts, alarm went off, I'm out the door, he's snooze, 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 and it just gave me anxiety leaving him. But uh, talk about why that's kind of meaningless. Well, it not only is it meaningless, it's so detrimental to your body and your physicality. You know, our brains and our bodies are sort of designed to fall asleep and wake up on their own. You know, there's actual chemicals that are released in our brains to prepare us for waking up. And if we can train our bodies to wake up at the right time every single day, you can get out of bed without an alarm, which I do about 80% of the time, I wake up without an alarm and I'm out of bed and you feel so good if you have actually awoken in the way your body is supposed to awaken. As soon as you hit the snooze alarm, what happens is you begin a new sleep cycle and that sleep cycle lasts 10 or 15 minutes before the alarm goes off again. So essentially what you're doing is you're startling yourself awake continually. And that's why we wake up bleary eyed. That's why we need to get into a hot shower right away to wake ourselves up. That's the reason we feel bad when we get out of bed in the morning. It's not because getting out of bed is a painful experience. It's because we make it a painful experience by not doing the things our bodies want us to do, including absolutely never use the sleep, the snooze alarm ever again. It is a terrible, terrible thing for your body. Uh, I, I completely agree. Um, you talk about in the book too, and I know you have your own personal, we all have to kind of find our own personal needs when it comes to sleep, but can you talk about the importance and then you kind of hit on the, the routine of the cycle, um, but just the importance of getting good sleep and figuring out what is going to serve you best for, for being most productive? Yeah, I'm interested in sleep because I'm interested in squeezing the most number of minutes out of my day as possible. You know, I always think that sleep is precious and I take it seriously, but I also can't stand it because I essentially put myself into an unconscious state where I'm utterly unproductive and I can't even keep track of the time as it's, as it's moving along. So my goal is to sleep really well and get enough sleep but also to get as little sleep as I actually need. You know, most people when I'm working with them, sort of helping them become more productive people, I'll start with sleep and I'll say, how many hours of sleep do you need? And they'll say eight. And if you need eight, I think that's great. Like get your eight hours, get your nine if you need it. But when I start drilling down into their sleep habits, what I discover is, well, they actually get into bed and they watch half an hour of television or they read a book or they stare at their phone for half an hour. And then they toss and turn for 20 minutes before they actually fall asleep. So now we're about up to an hour that they call sleep, that I call laying in bed, not doing anything useful. And then the same thing happens on the back end. You know, they, they say they're gonna get up at seven o'clock, but really what happens is sort of maybe their alarm goes off at 6.15, they snooze twice till 6.45, then they sort of slumber in the bed till seven and finally they drag themselves out. So when we drill down to the actual 
amount of time spent sleeping in the bed. Sometimes I can get them down to like, you're only sleeping six hours. You're just wasting time on both ends. And you're also not only wasting time, but you're damaging your sleep. So if we start using our bed for only sleep, what will happen is over time, your body and your brain, when you lay down, will say, oh, it's time to sleep. And you'll fall asleep very quickly. I fall asleep within a minute every single night. Makes my wife crazy. In the middle of conversations, I'm just gone. You know, if you start using like white noise, that'll become a trigger for your brain. Oh, I hear white noise and I'm lying down. Now I'm supposed to go to sleep. And that white noise will cover up all the things in the middle of the night that wake us up. If you're waking up in the middle of the night frequently, it's probably because something is waking you up. An alarm has gone off, a siren, a creak in your house might wake you up. But white noise will cover all of that up and allow you to go to sleep throughout the entire night rather than breaking your sleep cycle. The most important thing you can do, though, probably is to just begin going to bed at the same time every night or about the same time and then allowing your body to wake up at about the same time. And once you start doing that, you're just going to feel so much better and you'll find what you actually need as opposed to time spent in bed that you call sleep that really is just wasted time. Love all the little tips there. Um, I, I have one of the uh, health monitors that's kind of helped a lot too, but it, it tells you right away when you're not sleeping in that bed, <laughs> how much sleep you're actually getting. Um, yes. What uh, productivity wise, when you kind of think of, you know, you're, you've been a teacher, you spend a lot of time in education and, uh, when it comes to maybe student athletes, teachers, educators, coaches, what's some of the often low hanging fruit? Uh, in your book, you talk about being criminal with your time. Um, we're getting to that sense where you need to be a little criminal. Can you talk about maybe some of the low hanging fruit and then explain why we need to be criminal with our time once in a while? Yeah, you know, I say be criminal with your time, meaning if you're a rule follower, you know, which my wife and children actually are, they're obsessive rule followers. What happens is people often end up doing things that are really unnecessary, but sort of required by some outside force, you know? And so when you're looking at your life, what I always say is, do you have to do it? Are you required to do it? And then always balance the sort of if I don't do it, what will happen to me? I mean, one of the terrible things that I say as a teacher, but I really believe this, I, just, I teach fifth grade, the last year of elementary school. So my students go into middle school the next year. And during a middle school orientation one time that I was sitting through, I found out that homework counted for 10% of their grade. And so I told my students, I said, it's only 10% of your grade and it's gonna take you four hours every night, which means if you do half of it, you'll still get five of those 10% and you'll have two hours of your life returned to you. Like there really is the idea that I want my students to perform academically well, but I want them to enjoy their childhoods too. And okay. if you start to just look at those numbers and start to realize also your middle school grades are not exceptionally relevant in terms of what college you're going to get into. Right. I want you to learn. I want you to master what you need to master. Do the homework that's going to like a, cause you to get a good grade on a test. But if it's a busy work assignment that is clearly going nowhere and is just assigned by a teacher who feels they need to assign something, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, I passed on this one. I'll take my zero and move on if it's worth 10% of your overall grade. So yeah. that's sort of like that idea that we can just be criminal in, in things that don't necessarily mean a lot, you know? And that's as simple as like today, when I dropped my kids off at camp, 
I'm famous for inventing a parking spot, you know? So I found this spot between two trees to park the car and my kids were like, this is not a parking spot. And I said, well, there's no police on the campgrounds and the camp director might come over and say, move your car. And then I will say, okay. And that'll be the end of that. Now my kids, they're at the point that they can't handle that, but that's what I'm actually trying to get them to do to understand that illegally parking on a campground is a fairly irrelevant thing that has no consequences. So making those determinations will really help you find the time you need. Yeah. Yeah. I read your book. I think probably some other listeners too. You probably all wish we had a teacher like you at some point in our life. Um, Or not. (laughs) Or not, maybe. Um, (laughs) You you know, you you teach, you talk a lot about your experiences in your book. Um, You also, you know, do a lot with storytelling. And I think so much is coaches and students, athletes, when we talk about inspiring and motivating, it comes being able to tell stories. What, what's maybe coaches out there listening or something that a way that they could integrate stories better to, to connect their teams? Well, two things I can think of right away that I do quite a bit. With my own students, one of the things I do all the time is I tell them stories of my failures, my embarrassments, my shames, my, my miserable experiences. I want them to be able to express those same feelings to me. I want to know the fears and the concerns and the shames and the embarrassments that they're suffering so I can help them through them. And if they don't feel like I'm a safe person to speak to, then they're going to keep it bottled up. You know, the result is you know, I teach fifth grade. Every year, a couple of my female students come to me and say, Mr. Dix, I just had my first period. Now I'm in an elementary school. There's women everywhere. There's lots of lady teachers they could go and talk to, and yet they come to me. And it's because throughout the year, they've heard me talk about all of these moments of awkwardness in my life or embarrassment. And so they look across the the hallway and they say, that's the guy who's gonna understand me. And so I think as coaches and people who work with young people, letting them know that we are the kind of people who have experienced the things they've experienced. We should not put ourselves on a pedestal and sort of project perfection to people because that makes us like unreachable. So instead talking about the times you struck out to end the game, talking about how hard it was to learn to do something. I was a pole vaulter in high school. I always talk to my students about how ridiculous and impossible that seemed for so long for me, because that's how so many things are going to seem for them. And then the other thing I think we can do as teachers and coaches, especially is so often in life, people fail to acknowledge the progress that they've made. They only see what is left to do. And so if we can tell our students, our, our, you know, our student athletes, tell them the stories that they're not telling themselves, say to them things like, I remember on the first day of practice, you couldn't do anything. You were, you were a miserable baseball player who couldn't see the ball and couldn't catch the ball. You didn't know what hand to put the glove on. Today, you're playing third base. You're able to hit the ball. We have a lot of growth to make, but could we just look behind us and see how far we've come? People never do that. And so when we can tell people stories about the progress that they've made and put that in their heads, I think that's deeply inspiring to them. I like that you bring it up because I think you, we, we see that in sports and athletics and, and you probably everywhere with high performers that often with high performing kids, they forget how far they've grown or how far they've come. And it's such a useful tool to point to when another point of adversity comes. 
to, to give them that reference points that they've conquered before. And so I love that you bring that up and also the, the piece about being vulnerable as a coach right? and just being able to open that, that to, to your team, to your kids, to your class, whatever it may be. Um, while you're a productivity master guru, um, you find so many tips in your book. There's also an idea that I think, you know, is, you know, I know I felt guilty of in trying to do my own business and own things. Um, you start to pass on opportunities or keep your head down and say you're busy. You bring up the idea of a hundred year old you. Can you share a little bit about a uh, hundred-year-old you, you and why we should uh, listen to that voice to make decisions sometimes? Yeah. Well, you know, it was born from oddly, you know, the worst moment of my life probably. You know, when I was 22, I was managing a McDonald's restaurant. You know, it was closed and I was at the safe counting money when three armed men broke into the store. And I found myself on the floor. Uh, they wanted me to open up part of the safe that I couldn't open that contained money. And uh, they didn't believe me that I couldn't open it. And so they put a gun to my head and counted back from three and told me they were going to kill me. And, you know, in that moment, I was absolutely certain that my life was going to end. And the thing that I'm always astounded by was in that moment, I didn't feel fear or sadness or even anger for what was happening to me. The only feeling I was consumed with was regret the idea that I was 22 years old and I had barely accomplished anything and had failed to chase any of my dreams, that I thought there was another day ahead of me and, and this was it. And so ob obviously I survived. There was no bullet in the gun. They pulled a trigger on an empty gun that night. But since then, I've sort of become relentlessly obsessed and with the pursuit of ensuring that on my last day, on my real last day on this planet, that I don't feel that same regret. And the way I avoid it is I've come to understand that the me of right now, the one speaking to you, I am unreliable when it comes to choosing how to spend my time. You know, if you ask me right now, what do you want to do? I'd say, I'd like to eat a cheeseburger and go play golf. You know, that would be my choice just about at all times, you know, maybe throw some poker in as well. So what I do instead is when I find myself with an hour, actually today, I find myself with a couple hours. Someone just canceled a meeting with me later this afternoon. And so I have two hours to sort of figure out what to do with. Rather than relying on myself, the me right now who would go eat a cheeseburger and play golf, I look forward to the 100-year-old version of myself, the one that I theoretically imagine is on the last days of his life. And I ask that version of me, how should I spend my afternoon today? How do you want me to spend that afternoon? I can tell you that that version of me has never said binge a Netflix show. He's never said scroll through Instagram. He's never told me to stare at TikTok. You know, he's never told me to waste my time in some meaningless way. You know, when I ask that version of me, that 100-year-old self, how should I spend this day? He's probably going to tell me, your wife is going to be at the lake today with her friend. I think she would love it if you went there too. Maybe the two of you could get on a sailboat and you could go around the lake maybe with their friend. That's probably the way the 100-year-old version of me would like me to spend my afternoons. So that's probably what I'm gonna do. When truthfully, I would just call my buddy, I'd go play another nine holes of golf because I already played this morning. I'd play another nine and I'd grab a cheeseburger from Shake Shack on the way by. So we can't rely on the current version of ourself to always make the right choice. We have to be having that long view, you know? And I think that's what the best sort of I think the most successful people, whether they're athletes or students or entrepreneurs, I think that's what they do. I think they look ahead and say, 
it doesn't matter what I am today. It's what I want to be. So what can I do today to get me to what I want to be? And I think that's, I think that's that long vision we have to have. You find that the practicality in that is that it just limits your choices or that it makes them more purposeful. I think it makes them more purposeful. I actually think it expands my choices quite a bit. Sure. Yeah. Fair, fair. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for most people it would expand them because I really do think that there's a lot of sort of binge watching Netflix and staring at TikTok and I don't know, just wasting and dithering time away when I, when I think you can do anything with the next two hours of your afternoon, what would you do? Like suddenly for me, that becomes quite expansive. I think, well, I could also go for a nice bike ride, you know, or I could, I could call the buddy I haven't spoken to in a long time and maybe go for a walk with him. Or maybe I could actually do two hours of writing because I do have a book deadline. I think the hundred year old version of myself would be kind of okay with any of those things. The thing I know he never tells me to do is the stupid things that we fill our days with so often. He's telling me, listen, at the end of your life, you're never going to think to yourself, God, I wish I had watched that that show that I never got to, you know, or I wish I had just seen a few more Instagram images. That would have been amazing. These are not choices that we want to make. If you talk to hospice workers, uh, they're often interviewed and, and the question they're asked is, what do people talk about in the last days of their lives? And the things they always talk about is what you didn't do, opportunities not taken, risks not taken, places not visited. Those are all the things that we regret at the end of our lives. I just learned that David Cassidy, the musician, the Partridge family, world famous musician, on his deathbed, the last words he spoke to his daughter were, so much wasted time. And that's David Cassidy, a musician known all over the world who we would look at and say accomplished a lot. In his last moments, he was thinking about the time that he wasted. That's what I don't want for people. I want people to think, I've lived a full life and made good choices. I love it. I love it. Uh, one of the things you talk about, kind of that, maybe sometimes the hundred-year-old version makes you seek the yes, um, but the gift of yes, right? And there's a there's a line that I, I liked. It says, you know, yes is not a permanent state of being. It's a willingness to try something new. Right. Can you talk yeah. about how sometimes when people say, I think we've, there's been like a movie about these, yes, everything, and people get like, you just, just go. But can you talk about why there is a gift of yes and why it's still in your power to say no? Yeah, I think there's actually a movement. You know, I hear it a lot now that we have to say no more often and protect our time and protect our energy. And I just think that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I say yes to every single opportunity afforded to me, knowing that it's not permanent. Yes means someone has opened a door for me and I have the choice to walk through it or not close it forever. Usually if you, if you say no to an opportunity, it often does not come around a second time. And so someone opens a door for you. You have a choice to close it without ever stepping through it, or you can go through that door. You don't have to walk a mile through that door. You can take a step right across the threshold and try something that you've never tried before. Try it for an hour, a day, a month, a year. And if it doesn't prove to be fruitful or enjoyable or productive for you, there's nothing wrong with turning that yes into a no. But by not stepping through the threshold, not looking to the other side of the door, you have no idea what you're missing out on. People who say you should say no more often, they have this weird belief that they actually know what's good for them that they can predict what will be helpful to them in the future. I can tell you that all the yeses that I've made in my life, the crazy ones, the ones that I would have told you, this is the dumbest idea, I should not do this, there's no reason why I should do this, they're always the most fruitful ones. Because I understand 
I have no idea what the future holds for me. Why would I limit my future? Instead, I want to expand my future and expand the number of choices I have. And so me as a pole vaulter, actually, right? I became a state champion pole vaulter. I had no desire to be a pole vaulter, right? Coach Cronin came to the sprinters and said, we need new pole vaulters. Who wants to go out and give it a try? I knew nothing about pole vaulting. I did not want to pole vault. But even then, as a 16-year-old kid, I said, all right, I'll see what it's about. You know, and the first vault I ever made, the only reason I became a pole vaulter was because I didn't let go of the pole when I fell off to the side and ended up in a ditch. You know, I was still holding the pole. And he said, okay, you're a pole vaulter. Basically, you have to be crazy. And holding onto the pole indicated I was a little crazy. But I never would have done that if I hadn't said, Coach Cronin opened a door. I'm going to walk through it and see what it's like. Had I hated it, would have closed the door, gone back out to sprinting, and that would have been the end of it. But we just can't have the hubris to believe we know what the future holds for us. We have to take a look at that future first. I love it. Um, one other question I always like to ask, um, if you get in a time machine, go back and visit 16-year-old you, what's one of the, the greatest lessons that you've learned along your journey that you would tell 16-year-old you? I think the thing I would tell my teenage self is simply that it's going to be okay. You know, I had a tough go of it for a little bit. You know, I got kicked out of my house after high school and I didn't have the opportunity to go to college immediately. No one sort of ever mentioned the word to me. And so, you know, I took a road that ultimately led to homelessness and, you know, I ended up arrested and tried for a crime I did not commit. I was in jail. I, I suffered that robbery and a whole bunch of other things for about, you know, four years of my life. I, I really struggled. And I think the worst thing that can happen to a person is hopelessness, the loss of hope. And there was a moment I can, I can remember it with such clarity where I sort of person who lived on the streets and could never achieve anything because of the position I was in. And I think that happens to a lot of people. You know, my, my therapist, I see a therapist for PTSD as a result of the, the robbery. Uh, you know, he often reminds me how lucky I am. And I agree because oftentimes when people lose hope in the way I did, when they end up in a situation that seems beyond repair, oftentimes what they do is they turn to drugs and alcohol and other vices, you know, and it's a good reminder to people that when you see someone who's suffering from addiction, nobody wanted to become addicted. They're often sort of taking care of pain that could not be taken care of in some other way. And I think a lot of people end up in those circumstances. So I think if we can tell people, I would tell my younger self and what I often tell young people is that, that it gets better, that it's going to be okay, that as hopeless as it seems, there's always possibilities for the future. And then I try to tell stories about those moments. You know, I try to tell stories about people who seemed, you know, incredibly lost in their lives, you know, doomed and somehow managed to rise above it. Normal people, not sort of Einstein geniuses, but just regular people who sort of found a way to something better than what they were dealing with at that moment. I think that's important to tell all people. And that's what I would love to tell my 60 year old self that it's gonna be okay. Yeah, you've, Matt's had a, an amazing story. I couldn't sum it up in this short podcast. You got to read, read some of the book, but I love that you bring up hope. And I think as I read your book and some of your story, I kind of kept turning the page and wondering where I was going to find some hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
for, for people out there, kids, students that maybe feel, you know, like they can't find it, what, what's sometimes a good place to maybe go in search of some strength or some hope when they're going through a struggle? Yeah, a, a couple of things. One is I really think looking to people, you know, and asking them sort of their life story, that's often a really useful thing. You know, it's often easy to feel like we're the only ones who are sort of failing at any moment or we're the only ones who have ended up on this sad road when in truth, so many of us have and we don't talk about it enough. You know, my wife, for example, uh, she had a miscarriage and it's a story I tell all the time because I happen to know that miscarriages are very common but often not spoken about. And the result of that is women often feel isolated guilty, filled with shame, unable to speak about it because no one else is speaking about it. So the more we can speak about these things, the better I think other people feel and the more hopeful they will feel. So, you know, if you're feeling lost and you're feeling like you're lacking that hope, what you do is you have to find people or read stories about people who have been in these similar circumstances and managed to get through them. Most people at some point in their life sort of hit what my son and I call the pit of despair. When we're watching a movie, it's that moment when nothing seems like it will go right and everyone is at their bottom. There's a film term. My son will turn to me, he's 10. He goes, dad, I think we're in the pit of despair. And I say, yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's how people feel sometimes in their lives. Like you're in your pit of despair, but there's always light. There's always a, there's always a tomorrow, you know? And if you can just start keeping track too of the incremental progress that you make, that tomorrow can be better than today. You know, that whatever you're doing, you know, I played golf today. My driver was a disaster, but I putt really well. And if I can think about the fact that I'm putting really well, better than anyone else on the course, I cannot hit the driver and it's killing me. But when I get to the green, I'm really good, right? That's hope for me. I don't know if I'm ever going to hit the driver like my friend and it's going to kill me if I can't. <laughs> but I know when I get to the green, I'm going to putt better than him. You know, that little bit of progress over time, if we can focus on that, that'll give us some hope too. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing so much wisdom and insight. Really appreciate the, the way you share stories and your own personal life and can't thank you enough. It's my pleasure. And I think it's, um, I think it's wonderful that, you know, I know your audience consists of people who work with young people and I just think that is such important work that people do and it's underappreciated and it's absolutely underpaid uh, and it's essential, you know, and I just, I credit everyone who is willing to spend time with young people who, you know, I've been a teacher for 24 years. I know that they can be a real pain in the butt sometimes, but they need great adults in their lives, helping them, you know, move forward and find the right way for them. So credit to everyone who listens to your podcast and is looking for ways to make those young people's lives better because it's important. So um, kudos to everyone doing that. <laughs>